I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. Actually, I wanted to find out how many people in the audience are members. Wow. All right, hands down. How many of you are guests of members? Nice. Um, yeah, so uh, we've been doing this series since uh, 2003. There's been about 170-plus lectures in the series uh, since that time. Um, through the course of the year, we get about a little over 8,000 people through the doors uh, for talks like this. And, but the, the largest outreach that we have is actually through the media that gets produced from the series, uh, almost a million downloads of some kind uh, a year. And so it's a, it often now, you know, it used to be the clock project in some way was something that was the touchstone for a lot of people, but we now find uh, that it's the lecture series. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about how that gets supported. And actually, fundamentally, it gets supported uh, by you, our members. And 50% um, of the cost of the series, which costs several hundred thousand dollars a year, um, is supported by you. So I want to thank you all for that. Um, the other chunk is supported by our seminar sponsors, um, who uh, pay about between fifteen and $40,000 a year to keep this thing going, and uh, as well as our seminar media sponsor, which we now have uh, an opening for the main media sponsor. And one of the things we really want to do is actually cover a little bit less of this with membership, because the membership money is also our general fund that keeps the lights on and things like that. So uh, if there is an interest in helping us as a media sponsor and reaching those million people that might happen to like Long Now things, uh, please do let our team know. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Um, something I've discovered over the years is that biologists and physicists sort of glare at each other. Um, biologists think physicists, especially theoretical physicists, are very abstract and lifeless, and the physicists think that biology is seriously squishy and seems to consist entirely of special cases. So drawing any general pattern is kind of hopeless. And uh, for a while, when the Santa Fe Institute first got going, and I mentioned here that George Cowan, who's the founder of that, was one of the first funders of this series, um, this was basically a bunch of physicists coming down the mountain from Los Alamos to uh, think about complex adaptive systems. And I said, from my background as biology, you need some biologists. And they said, well, that would be very nice. Do you happen to know any? <laughs> and that went on for a few years. And eventually they got some. And our speaker and I was president of the Santa Fe Institute for a while, and they came up he came up, and some of the biologists they started working with came up with something quite profound. And back when I was studying biology at Stanford in the 50s, we were all reading a book by a theoretical physicist who'd gotten a Nobel Prize named Erwin Schrodinger. Schrodinger wrote a book called What is Life? 
And he was going down to the fundamental sort of entropy level of what does life do that is actually uh, unique. And his insights led to, among other things, the discovery of the double helix and inspired a generation of biologists. And what Jeffrey West, the speaker tonight, came up with in terms of scaling and life, and life as it goes on to include culture and cities and companies and so on, I think is something that biologists and many other disciplines will study the way we, just, we studied Schrodinger. Please welcome Jeffrey West. Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Stuart, for that lovely introduction. Um, and thank you, in particular, for inviting me back. I talked in this Long Now series a few years ago, and it's uh, lovely to be back, especially in this marvelous auditorium. So um, this title was actually suggested, I would even say imposed upon me, by Stuart. <laughs> and indeed, I'm going to talk about... Uh, uh, the, the growth and the pace of life, and I'm certainly going to talk about universal laws. And, um, but at the back of my mind in this, and what I hope to be able to lead us up to uh, at the end of the talk, is the whole question of the future of our planet um, and whether you know, this marvelous socioeconomic edifice that we've um, uh, constructed is actually sustainable, the whole question of global sustainability. And that, that's how I want to try to finish up the talk. Um, but that, of course, involves these other things that are mentioned up here. Of course, the, the kind of life history of the various living things on the planet, uh, organisms, biological phenomena, um, cities, and, of course, companies, which are part of socioeconomic life, but they're all living beings, so to speak, and they're all complex systems. They all adapt and evolve. So... Um, I come to it, as indicated by Stuart, as a physicist, a theoretical physicist, <laughs> and uh, that means that in, in order to address this, what I'm trying to think of is really asking the question, is it conceivable to have a quantitative, predictive science of cities, companies, and uh, uh, organisms? And uh, so, uh, as I said, this is just saying what I've already said, uh, that... Uh, I'm coming to it from a, as a physicist, from a physicist viewpoint, um, but I've spent a lot of time doing biology, and I'm going to bring that to bear on the question of cities and companies and sustainability. And to provide the background, I first want to remind you of stuff that uh, you're actually familiar with, although you may, have, may not have thought about it in this light. And that is, everybody is familiar with the idea that we live in a... Um, expanding universe. This is, uh, you know, this marvelous idea that coming out of the Big Bang, the universe is expanding at an exponential rate. But many of us uh, are not so familiar with something that's incredibly close at home and affects our daily lives, and that is that we live in an exponentially expanding socioeconomic universe. And I want to just dwell on that for a moment. And um, just to give you a metric of that, you know, uh, 200 years ago, the United States was just a few percent uh, urban. It was mostly rural, agricultural. 
and today it's well over 80%, uh, the planet crossed that the halfway mark, the planet is more than 50% urbanized, that happened just a few years ago, and uh, somewhere towards the end of the century, the planet as a whole will move towards this uh, 70 to 80% urbanization. And uh, to put that in perspective, if you just average from now to 2050, that's equivalent to urbanizing. That means people building infrastructure, urbanizing at the rate of well over a million people, um, uh, well over a million people every week. Actually, it's about 1.4 million uh, a week. And that's equivalent to adding, as I've written down there, adding a New York metropolitan area um, every couple of months from now to mid-century, which is kind of extraordinary. Or, to bring it close to home, adding the city of San Francisco, the equivalent in terms of population and infrastructure, every four or five days. So that's what you're living in. And that's going on inextricably. That's going to be going on to mid-century. So, you know, the stress on resources, on energy, on the social fabric is phenomenal. And uh, we need to begin to try to understand that. Another example of that is China, which was extremely slow to urbanize, but has now crossed the halfway mark and is building, they claim to be building, and indeed they sort of have to build, um, of the order of two to 300 new cities in the next 15 to 20 years, each in excess of a million people. So that's, uh, you know, that's just China, and then there's India, and then there's uh, Africa, and Latin America, and so forth. So it's a fantastic enterprise that we are part of, and it's going to affect everybody. So we just saw this marvelous short, which was fantastic, and that indeed is, uh, you know, there's another illustration of it, this extraordinary effect uh, that human beings have had on the planet. Um, a picture, if we'd been able to take a picture like this um, when I was a child, there would have just been a few bright lights. And it's, you know, what has happened in this short period of time um, is this filigree, this beautiful filigree, which you could also think of as a virus, has infected the planet. <laughs> and of course, that is, that is a manifestation of this extraordinary phenomenon, that if you go back 10,000 years for when men and women started talking to one another and forming communities, coming out of being uh, hunter-gatherers and forming communities ultimately leading to cities, we've had this extraordinary growth of the population which went completely bonkers, uh, beginning with the Industrial Revolution where it just shot straight up. So I was born in 1940, and if you look at that, there were just over two billion people on this planet, and now there's seven and a half billion. That number is going to somewhere close to maybe 10 billion, maybe even greater uh, at the end of the century. So we're, we're on this extraordinary, uh, crazy ride, and we need to understand what it is, and we need to understand, in particular, the role of cities in doing that. So that's all represented by this paradigm of growth, open-ended growth, which has been enormously successful, uh, the kind of capitalist entrepreneurial system which has led us to this. And here's another metric of what has happened. This is the GDP of the United States since just after the Civil War. And uh, you can see it just keeps zooming up and all the little dips and bumps and the crises are minor. So, you know, you didn't have to be a genius 
to make a lot of money in principle because if you'd invested one dollar after the Civil War, that would be worth a million dollars today, even allowing for inflation. And that's just a metric of how extraordinary um, the success of this socioeconomic expansion has been. So this is maybe the only equation I have in this talk. Uh, everything, what I'm going to be talking about uh, underneath it is a, a lot of mathematics and technicalities of which I will show none, but this is an equation, and this is the, the equation that, you know, <laughs> that um, what I've already indicated, that the fate of the planet in terms of our socioeconomic activity and the effect it's going to have on the environment is completely integrated with the fate of our cities. And, um, and you know, the term Anthropocene has been used for the, our present uh, um, era. Um, but I actually would prefer to call it the Urbanocene because it's really what's happened, you know, what we have done in terms of agglomerating these incredible edifices like this marvelous city we're in now, but across the planet and beautifully exemplified by that uh, short, that um, uh, that has dominated the planet. Um, so uh, I mean, people started dominating the planet well before cities came along. So that's why I like to distinguish the two. So here's what cities. This is, you know what cities are. They come in all kinds of shapes and forms and sizes. And as I said a moment ago, in order to come to terms with this, we certainly need a science of cities and we need to understand these kinds of phenomena that go along with it, it's their resi how resilient they are, how they evolve, how they grow, are they scalable? And that leads into sustainability, and a term I like to coin is that we somehow need a grand unified theory of sustainability that includes everything that's going on in this planet. And I will come back to that near the end. So we're all familiar with why cities are so attractive. There's, uh, great, there's greater material well-being in cities, typically. There's greater opportunities. There's a greater sense of buzz. There's cultural events. There's events like this take place in cities. Uh, there's sexy restaurants and uh, lots of good education and so on and so forth. All of this is, is a tremendous magnet that attracts people to cities. And again, I will return to that in a moment to elaborate on it. But none of this can happen, none of this can happen without energy. Energy is the most fundamental quantity that drives this. And, um, uh, it, so, and, and there's the one thing that I'm sure many of you are at least somewhat familiar with, that there's a fundamental law of physics called the second law of thermodynamics. Um, now, the second law of thermodynamics is actually the most fundamental law of physics. It's inviolable. And what it says, roughly speaking, is that if you want to create lots of order, so you build a city, you build a company, you build an organism, you create order by using energy, inevitably, you're going to create disorder somewhere else. And that disorder goes by the name of entropy. So, there's a fundamental theorem, the second law of thermodynamics, is that entropy increases. So that says that if, when you create order, you have unintended consequences. And in particular, when you create socioeconomic systems, you have socioeconomic entropy. And that we recognize in phenomena like this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and of course this social unrest, 
and indeed I would speculate that uh, a significant part of the social unrest we see across the globe, whether it's, uh, when, where it's put in terms of ethnic, cultural, or religious terms, is actually driven a lot by this extraordinary phenomena that we're going through and the stresses and strains that that inevitably causes. And one of the deep questions we have to ask ourselves, is this what cities, and in particular, maybe even San Francisco, are going to look like in 50 or 100 years, or something like this? So this is the kind of question I want to, <laughs> uh, we want to think about. So when you think of cities, you usually think you know, your image is usually physical. So you think of, you know, the boulevards of Paris and the Eiffel Tower. You think of the skyscrapers of New York and so on and so forth. But of course, uh, that's, uh, when you actually think about what a city is, that's actually just the stage. That's just the platform upon which all our lives and all the social networks and all the information and all the creativity is taking place. And in fact you could think of the city as maybe one of our greatest inventions because it, because it is the place that facilitates social interaction, such as a gathering like this, but in particular on an ongoing daily basis social interaction that creates wealth, that creates ideas, and um, stimulates innovation. So this is much more what a city looks like. It's the interaction of the physicality with the social, or this, people sitting around bullshitting in Paris. This is a <laughs> crucial aspect of cities. Or this, which is Rome. And this is a marvelous picture because you see that the stage has been there for 2,000 years. It's the same stage, different people, but facilitating a, a place of interaction people to come together, interact, and I found this picture, this is your city, this is San Francisco, of bringing people together. Or this, my city, London, when I was a boy, that's what it looked like. And this, for some of you maybe from New York, that's what New York used to look like 120 years ago, and it's a fantastic picture because you can viscerally, viscerally feel the interaction, you can feel the entrepreneurship, the the, the, the ideas, the, the, the whole creativity that's going on, and the yearning for something more, for a, for a good life, and so forth. And, um, of course, New York doesn't look like this anymore. Um, that is, the people aren't the, there anymore doing this, but the buildings are exactly the same. It's just like that picture of Rome. But what is happening in New York the spirit of what's going on there is still happening in, in New York and it's still happening and is happening in San Francisco, but it's happening inside buildings in a different venue but provided by the infrastructure. So a crucial aspect of dealing with this situ these, these kinds of uh, systems is the interaction between the physicality of the system, Stuart used the word metabolism, the metabolism of an organism, metabolism of a city, the physical part of it, the way energy is being uh, used to uh, sustain life, whatever it is. Um, but, and that going through the infrastructure, the tension between that and information exchange, which is what we discovered beginning about 10,000 years ago with language to exchange information. And uh, therefore, as I've already elaborated on, 
uh, create ideas and wealth. So all of the problems that we face uh, as we move ahead, all of the big issues that we face from uh, climate change, global warming, from questions of uh, is there enough energy available, are there enough resources, is there enough water, uh, to questions of health, to questions of pollution, uh, and so forth, all of these have their origins in cities. That's because that's where the people are. Cities generate all of the problems that we have to face, and the problems have become um, much more apparent in the last 20 years only because we've been expanding exponentially. They've grown huge in the last 20 years, not because they weren't there before. They've always been there. They have just now started to become a kind of tsunami. So cities, on the one hand, are the problem, in the sense that's where the action takes place that leads to these issues, but they're also the solution, as I've already indicated, because they're the vacuum cleaners that suck up people, that attract people. That's where all the ideas are created. That's where all the wealth is created. The other aspect of cities is that it, everything goes on there. So here's just a laundry, an arbitrary laundry list that's not complete of all the various aspects of a city. And the important thing to recognize about this is that each one of these is a highly complex system that itself is evolving. But more importantly, all of these systems are taking place and interacting together. They're not to be thought of as separate. And one of the problems that we face in dealing with our issues, such as global warming or energy, or health, is that we tend to stovepipe them. And one of the things that we learn when we study complex systems, especially evolving adaptive systems, is that it is dangerous and often misleading to think of them as independent, these different pieces as independent, and not to see them holistically and integrated and interacting with each other. And that's what I said there. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about biology. And I'm doing this for lots of reasons. One is it gives us a template and a way of thinking that we can come back to and talk about cities and sustainability. But the other reason is that it brings up some interesting questions of themselves. And in particular, if we ask about can we have a science of cities and sustainability, for instance, um, the answer is not in the way I said quantitative, predictive, like physics is, meaning that we can make predictions to arbitrary accuracy. That's why, you know, you can, your cell phone works, after all, because we send signals up to satellites and they come back and we know exactly where that satellite is. We know exactly how to control the position of the satellite, how to control those signals and so forth. That's because those systems are what we call simple as distinct from complex, and we understand the fundamental equations uh, that describe them. But when we come to something like a city or an organism, that's going to be impossible. There's just too many components, too many actors on the stage at the same time, and one would need maybe an infinite number of equations, so it's impossible. So um, does that mean that we can't do anything? The answer is no, because there's maybe something in between, and that's what we call a coarse-grained description, meaning something that's low resolution, and I want to illustrate that by example, and that's the following question. So, well, maybe I'll, uh, before doing that, I'm going to make a prediction. The prediction is 
everybody in this room will be dead in 100 years. <laughs> and you can ask yourself the question, why is that? Why can't some of us live for 1,000 years or even a million years? Where in the hell does 100 years come from? Why should it be 100 years? Um, that is a coarse-grained question. And the answer to it would be a coarse-grained explanation, meaning that we ought to be understand the order of magnitude, the scale of human life, without necessarily being able to predict how long Stuart Brand is going to live, for example. So um, that's coarse-grained. And so here it is. So why do we live 100 years and not 1,000, or two to three years like a mouse? And let me tell you, a mouse is tissue. A mouse is made of the same stuff as we are, pretty much the same thing. And yet, somehow, that dies after two to three years, uh, whereas we can live uh, up to 100 years. So there's the questions. Where do these things come from? Or, for example, a similar question, why is it that everybody is going to go home tonight and sleep for somewhere of the order of eight hours? Why eight? Why isn't it 16 or 17 hours? Like a mouse. This little mouse has to sleep 16 or 17. Or, now I'm going to stop so I can see, how many people in this room know how long an elephant sleeps? Don't say it. He does. <laughs> <laughs> An elephant sleeps about four hours a night, and a whale about two. Now, why is that? Where does that come from? So that's the, those are coarse-grained questions. And I'm not, in this talk, going to answer them. But if you read my book, <laughs> if you read my book, you can find the answer. So another set of coarse-grained questions are, you know, are cities and companies just very large organisms? They, after all, they evolved from biology through us. Um, are they like organisms? We often use metaphors like, you know, the DNA of the company, the metabolism of the city, the ecology of the marketplace, and all those other sort of bullshit metaphors that people write bestseller books about. Um, and the question is, is there any serious substance to that? And as a corollary to that, and in fact, what got me into this, this, some of these uh, the things I'm going to talk about is this intriguing question, why is it that uh, we die, that's the previous question, but all companies die? It's, uh, companies eventually die like we do, or at least they disappear, um, but cities don't. I mean, you can always think of examples, classic examples of Mayan cities or ancient Greek cities that have died. But modern cities, it's almost impossible uh, to kill them. Uh, we dropped atom bombs on two cities uh, 70, 80 years ago, whenever that was. And those cities, 20, 30 years later, are fine. But a small fluctuation in the stock market or the externalities, and you lose a TWA, you lose the Montgomery Wards, you're going to lose Sears. We should have lost General Motors. We lost Lehman Brothers. <laughs> so companies are extremely fragile, but cities are extraordinarily resilient. And I will come back to that. So that's one of the things to be discussed. Or this. <laughs> what the hell happened? <laughs> that's too close to home. OK. So, 
here's, a, here's three mammals. We're one of these. Mammals span, we span, we span a range of about eight orders of magnitude, 100 million in our size, from the, the shrew, which is about this big, to the blue whale, which is much bigger than this auditorium. And uh, they look different. They have different evolutionary histories. But in fact, as I'm now going to show you, um, we're actually scaled versions of one another to a remarkable degree, to a sort of 18, 90% degree in concerning anything that you can measure about them, any physiological characteristic about them, uh, and I'm going to show you some, or any life history event. Life history event meaning how long did they take to mature, uh, what was their growth rate, uh, how long do they live, how fast does oxygen diffuse across some membrane inside them. They're, we're all scaled versions of one another, and here's the most fundamental example. It's your metabolic rate, roughly speaking, how much energy did you, do you need to stay alive, how much food you need to eat to stay alive, and it's plotted on the vertical axis, that's metabolic rate, and on the horizontal axis is the size of the animal, the mass, the weight of the animal, and it's plotted, you see, by factors of 10, 1, 10, 100, 1,000, and, and so forth, so that you get a mouse and elephant on the same graph, because if you put the mouse here, and you try to put an elephant on a linear graph, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all the way up to the size of an elephant, it would be, I don't know where it would be, it would be South San Francisco or somewhere, it would be a long way away. So you, we plot it this way, and it's called logarithmic. This is called just logarithmic. And the, what is amazing about this is that something extraordinarily simple emerges Whereas we're dealing with something that's maybe the most complex phenomenon in the universe, metabolism, how you take stuff and you make life out of it. That's what we do when we eat. Um, and uh, furthermore, each one of these organisms, each subsystem, each organ, each cell type, each gene, gene type of it has its own unique history. Each one has evolved with its own unique historical contingencies in its own specific set of environments, in which case you would have thought, you have this sense of sort of certain randomness associated with natural selection, that when you plotted something like this, the points would be spread all over the graph, each point simply reflecting the uh, evolutionary history of that particular animal. Quite to the contrary, they've lined up beautifully along this straight line. There's an obvious uh, fluctuations around it, but it's beautifully, um, a, a beautiful fit to this. Furthermore, the slope of that line, as I've written there, is very close to this curious number of three quarters. Now, if the number had been one, uh, one would have sort of understood it in a very trivial way. One would have said, well, okay, you double the size of an organism, you double the number of cells, therefore you need twice as much energy. That's called linear. Quite to the contrary, you double the size of an organism, whatever it is, then uh, instead of needing twice as much energy to keep it alive, you only need 75%. There's a 25% saving, roughly speaking, every time you double, and that's what that graph says. So there's, that's called an economy of scale, and the fact that you have that economy of scale and that number three quarters is less than one is called sublinear. So these two things are actually scaled versions of one another, amazingly. 
So uh, that's what I've summarized here. And this is true, as I mentioned a moment ago, of any physiological variable that you can measure. And I just show you one or two here. Here is uh, heart rate, something quite mundane, which is the number of times your heart beats a minute. And what you see again is a very nice regular systematic scaling. And the slope of this, as I've indicated there, is very close to one quarter. It says minus one quarter, minus meaning only that it's going downwards instead of upwards. Here's you, or what you think of as you. This is your brain. This is your white matter to gray matter in the brain. Remember, the, the white matter is sort of the cables, and the gray matter is the processing part. And it's extraordinary across this huge number of animals uh, you get this amazing regularity. And here's something which is, has a much more fluctuations in it, but nevertheless, you see a, a similar scaling, and that's genome length of various bacteria and various cells and so forth, and you can see again that. So, so I could show you, I could spend the rest of the evening boring you with 75 or 100 of these kinds of things, of measurements, and they all have exactly the same characteristic. When you plot them this way, they all look like straight lines, and importantly, the slope of those lines is some simple multiple of one quarter. So the number that is somehow controlling, pervading all of life, is the number four. Amazing. <laughs> number four. That's the magic number. It's amazing. With all the, the you know, the historical um, interest in numbers, you know, like three and seven and 21, 13. Turns out four is the number. So here it is again. I, I, I should have changed this slide, but I kept it because it has some historical and romantic memories to, for me personally, uh, which is irrelevant to this talk. But uh, <laughs> what that says there, you see that second line, heart rate and that minus one quarter, that was just that graph I just showed you. This thing, decreases one quarter. That, that first thing up there, T, is lifespan, how long you live. That increases approximately with a slope of plus one quarter. So you've got heart rate decreasing with a certain slope, lifespan increasing, and if you multiply them together, the plus one quarter cancels the minus one quarter, so what it says, this is the only arithmetic I'm doing all evening, lifespan times heart rate doesn't change with size. It's the same for everybody. But what is lifespan times heart rate? That's the number of heartbeats in a lifetime. So that's the same for everybody, every mammal at least. So that says that the shrew, which lives for about a year or so, and his heart beats at some extraordinary rate, over a thousand times a minute, has the same number of heartbeats in its life as the whale, which lives for 150 years, and whose heart beats boom. 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 That goes the same number. That is fantastic. And here's the data. There you are. That's the number. They're all the same. We're all the same. Okay. We're... Okay, let me skip the next one. So, so there's these curious scaling laws, and the question is, where in the hell do they come from? Where, why, why, what is going on here? So the idea is, and that's what this word is up here, networks, 
is that, and this is the work I got involved in that Stuart referred to when I uh, was part of the Santa Fe, when I joined the Santa Fe Institute, um, and that is, um, if you ask yourself, um, how do organisms or any complex system, how is it sustained? It has huge numbers of components, enormous numbers of cells, for example, and each one has to be um, serviced democratically and efficiently, and we, what has happened is that natural selection has evolved networks to do that. So we are a bunch of networks. We're circulatory systems and renal systems and respiratory systems and bones and neural systems and so on. And here's just a few pictures of them. Um, there we are, that's you down at the bottom, that's the insides of you, but that's also you on the left, that's your brain, white matter to gray matter. The, the one on the bottom right is also you, it's your uh, networks within cells, and the top one is networks within mitochondria, you're a bunch of networks, and the idea is these networks, no matter what the design is, whether it's a tree or a human being or a, mal or a, uh, a, a fish or a bird, these networks may have different evolved designs, but the underlying principles, the underlying physics and mathematics of these networks are the same. And it turns out when you take that, when you take these principles, and the principles are to do with things like every cell has to be fed by the network, but you take these ideas and you put them into mathematics, all of these scaling laws come tumbling out, and the origin of the one quarter, the number four, uh, it also gets revealed, and um, I'm going to come back to that near, at the very end as to what that number four represents. But the point is, there is now a complete theory for understanding not just the origin of the scaling laws, but the way all your networks work. So how your circulatory system works, your respiratory system work, and so on. And I'm not going to dwell on that because I want to get on to other stuff. The last thing, though, I am going to do in this uh, context is to talk about growth as one example. When, when you have a theory, you can now apply it to many things. Growth is one. And uh, growth, of course, is a scaling phenomenon. You scaled as you grew, and you know how you did that in a certain sense. You ate. That's on the left there. You ate. You metabolized the energy, and that energy goes through the networks to feed cells, and uh, when it reaches those cells, it, and that's what I've written down here, it maintains those that are there, it re repairs damage, it, uh, uh, ones that have died, it replaces, and then it grows new ones. So um, you can put this into mathematics. This is just symbolic up there. And when you do it, you can derive how organisms should grow. What is the growth curve, so to speak, of an organism? And here's an example. This is us. Us as a rat. And what you see there is the weight versus age. And the line, the solid line there, is from this theory based on this equation, which is written in English here. But if you write it in mathematics, it gives rise to that. And those points there are data points. And you see it's very good. And you can do this for any organism. And the thing that is fantastic about it, it's not just that it gives, it gives uh, agreement with prediction, or it gives, uh, I'm sorry, it gives um, agreement with the data, but that um, it's true for any organism with the same parameters. There are just two or three universal parameters, like the mass of the cell and so forth, that go into it, which means the following, which means the theory tells you how to rescale everybody, so to speak, 
so that we all look as if we're growing in the same way, and that's this curve. I'm not going to explain this in detail. Just to give you the idea, you can see there's just a, 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 a spectrum of animals on this. Uh, we could add many more. Um, and if you rescale both their weight and time in a way determined by the theory governed by the network dynamics, everybody grows in the same way in this kind of universal way. So it's, it's, um, it's very almost spiritual to see the interconnectivity with all of them. And indeed, there's something even more bizarre. It's that um, you can put tumors on this, and tumors, uh, because it's us, it's the same stuff, and it also obeys this. So um, one can do many other things with this, and all the questions I asked before about aging and mortality and about sleep, one can address within this framework. I'm not going to do that because I want to move on to cities, but I just want to summarize what I said. There are these Here we have this extraordinarily complex system. Yet, somehow hidden in there are these extraordinary systematic relationships, these scaling laws, they're nonlinear. They're dominated by this number four. Uh, they express an economy of scale. The bigger you are, the less you need per capita. I didn't emphasize that. The bigger you are, the let your cells of a bigger animal work less hard than a smaller animal. Um, I also didn't emphasize that the pace of life systematically slows as an animal gets bigger. Um, I said that about heart rates oxygen diffusion across membranes and so forth, all of these slow down so that, just to go back to the image of the elephant, we know how to rescale everything about an elephant so that including its lifespan so that when you scale it down, it's a mouse. So that's, or us, or, one, or us even. Um, growth stops, that's a very important point, and I want to just go back to that for one moment for this, that one of the features of this that the theory explains is why it is that you grow at the beginning, you keep eating, and yet you stop growing. And that is intimately related to this sublinear behavior, this, this idea that the bigger you are, the less you need per capita. That feeds into this by ending up stopping growth so that we have this interesting relationship between the scaling of metabolic rate being sublinear, economies of scale, and leading to the cessation of growth. And finally, that these systems will die. They die because the wear and tear due to metabolism uh, eventually leads to their demise and uh, then gives rise to those scaling laws for lifespan. I'm just telling you that, I'm not explaining it, and you just have to take my word for it. And all of this comes, that last point there, is explained by the dynamics of these and the structure of these networks and these universal properties of those networks. Okay, so now I'm going to take this framework and apply it to cities. So I said before uh, in my introduction that uh, we, we urgently need to ask at least the question, is there a science of cities that is in some way predictable and quantitative? So the first question, taking this paradigm, is to ask, are cities scaled versions of one another? Because before, what we showed is that the whale is actually, to all intents and purposes, amazingly, a scaled-up giraffe, which is a scaled-up human being, which is a scaled-up mouse, in terms of 
these physiological and life history metrics. So is it, is it so that uh, New York is a scaled up Los Angeles, which is a scaled up San Francisco, which is a scaled up Santa Fe, even though they look different, they have different histories, geographies, and cultures, but that was true of those animals. They have different histories and so on. And, and is there anything universal about them? Well, at first, of course, you might think, well, they look completely different. Um, nevertheless, of course, uh, conceptually, they do our network structures. Cities are network structures in terms of their physicality. They have transport systems, and they have electrical lines and plumbing lines and, and gas lines and so on. They have these transport systems, and they're supplied by networks. But I already emphasized earlier, that's the physical part of a city, but maybe the more important part of a city, because that's the whole point of cities, is place for people. And I couldn't resist putting this in. Shakespeare, of course, who knew everything and understood everything, understood that cities are people. And indeed, this is a representation of that. We are social networks. Each node in that is a person. And those lines there are just the connections between them. So this is, some, this is one's image, one's abstract image of social interaction between people. This is a classic image. Uh, but there's something very special about these networks because there are two points that are often not emphasized and are often forgotten when we analyze these kinds of things. First is, uh, these networks have a modular property, meaning that, that's illustrated here, that we're all members of groups in some way, the most fundamental being family, but we have jobs and we have groups in the job, we have uh, departments and so on. And there's a kind of hierarchy of uh, group structure, modular structure, which is constraining this network, whatever it is. The second point is, and that's well as illustrated here, that even though when we think of networks, especially in the modern lingo of uh, you know, um, Facebook and all the rest of that stuff, um, <laughs> uh, um, that we think of it somehow out there in the cloud, up there in the cyberspace. But of course, um, you know, there's, there's some truth of that because it has to be transmitted by electromagnetic waves. But the, re the reality is, when you are part of a network, you have to be somewhere. You, you're in some place. You're sitting in your living room. You're sitting on the toilet. You're waiting for the bus. You're in your office. You have to be somewhere when you're using your cell phone or you're using your computer and so forth. So these networks also have a huge constraint that they have to be wedded in some way to the two-dimensional surface upon which we live. So let's move on from there and ask the question, are cities in fact scale versions of one another? And here's something mundane again. This is number of gas stations. It's called petrol stations in the picture because I did this work with some, uh, my, some German colleagues in Switzerland. And um, you can see there's very good evidence of scaling. They, there's uh, a regular behavior there. And that dotted line would be linear. So this is like biology. The slope is less than one. It's sublinear, which means there's an economy of scale, meaning the bigger the city, the less the number of gas stations you need per capita. Well, that's not so surprising. What is surprising, it's the same savings, roughly speaking, 
whatever country you're in, at least as far as these four are concerned, because the slopes of these are roughly speaking the same. The slopes of these are roughly 0.85 rather than 0.75 that we saw in biology. But what is amazing is that if you look across the globe, um, you see the same result. So you see the same thing for gas stations in China, Japan, Colombia, Chile, uh, the United States, and so forth. Um, but even more amazing is that if you look at any infrastructure, any infrastructure across the globe, uh, meaning um, the length of all the roads, the, uh, the length of all the electoral lines, whatever, whatever it is that's infrastructure, physical infrastructure, and you plot it this way, they look exactly like this. They have the same slope of 0.85, the same 15% savings. So put into English, it says every time you double the size of a city, you don't need twice as many gas stations or twice the length of the roads. You only need 85% as much. So you get this marvelous saving of economy of scale. That means, by the way, that um, in terms of transport and pollution caused by transport, since you're saving the bigger you are, you have less pollution per capita the bigger the city, which means the carbon footprint is smaller the bigger the city, which means that New York City is, in fact, the greenest city in the United States, which it is. You're not as green, doesn't matter, you know, I don't care how, whatever you do in terms of your recycling and all the rest, you're not as green as New York, and the most profligate is Santa Fe, where I live, because it's so small, it's inefficient. Okay, so big cities are good in that way. But that's, that's kind of, this is the biological side, the infrastructural part of cities. The more interesting and fascinating part of a city is what they're for, a people, and socioeconomic metrics, and these are two of them to begin with. That's wages at the top, and the bottom is something called super creatives, which is like everybody in this room. Kind of sexy, professional, buzzy people. <laughs> That's super creatives. And what you see here is there's, again, there's, more, there's some noise in the system, so to speak. There's variance, but you see good evidence of scaling, but the slope of these are, the, for the first time, bigger than one rather than smaller than one. This is called superlinear scaling. And both of these slopes are very close to 1.15. That's that beta up there. Which means the bigger the city, not less per capita, the bigger the city, more per capita, higher wages per capita, more sexy people per capita, more patents per capita, more innovation per capita, to the same degree, I forgot to put the number on this, more crime per capita, more police per capita, more taxes per capita, more fancy restaurants per capita, all to the same degree. Always, always the same, this 15% value added, so to speak, the bigger you are, no matter where you are in the world. And just here's a little panel of four of them. You can see some I, I already showed, but down there's the GDP of France, there's those restaurants. But they all, you can just see by eye, they all have pretty much the same slope. And there's a kind of universality, and that's represented here. Just, this is just the United States. This is income, GDP, crime, and patents. And they've been adjusted to lie on top of one another, but you can see they have the same slope. There's, again, lots of variance. And to put all of that into English, it's that the good, the bad, and ugly all come together 
in terms of socioeconomic activity, if you double the size of a city in any given urban system, then income, wealth, patterns, educational institutions, creative people, police, AIDS, flu cases, crime, whatever, all of them increase to the same degree by approximately 15% independent of the city, and you save approximately 15% on all infrastructure. And since we're very good at repressing the negative, the fact that there's more crime, more disease in a bigger city, bigger cities in general are better in terms of many of these metrics, and the bigger the city, the better it is. Both individually, there's greater opportunity, there's greater buzz, all the things I said earlier, but there's a collective savings of this 15% on infrastructure. And this is no doubt one of the fundamental reasons why cities continue to be attractive and why we have this phenomenon of megacities. So again, we ask the question, how can it be that cities in Japan and cities in the United States and cities in Portugal, for example, all scale in the same way. These urban systems all scale in the same way. It's not as if there was a congress in you know, 1810 that everybody got together and said, this is how we're going to design urban systems. This is how we're going to design cities so they conform to these rules. Just as in biology, this evolved organically um, by the interaction of human beings, and uh, that leads one to the idea that underlying this is the universality in terms of the mathematics and the physics of social interactions, social networks. And that the reason that it's the same all over the globe is that the nature of these networks, our social interactions, are in this coarse-grained sense the same. That this, the structure, for example, the modularity, sizes of families, the size of the groups that we interact with are pretty much the same across the globe. And so, um, uh, so one can develop a theory, just as one did for uh, the biology. And um, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to show you any of the mathematics. But you know, one of the one of the marvelous things about science is not just that one uh, analyzes things, that one um, uh, creates theories and models that uh, where we can understand the phenomena but one of its great triumphs is that we predict things that haven't been measured, or we make predictions about other things that can be tested, and then we have this uh, kind of um, uh, positive feedback mechanism of scientific, uh, the scientific method. So I just want to illustrate that with this. So when you look at this universality and you say, well, what I just said, that underlying it is actually the social dynamics inherent in social networks. That means they are a measure of somehow the degree of interaction as a function of city size. So that means that if we could measure independently how often people interact in cities and plot it versus the function of city size, it should just look like one of this fall on top of that. So how do you do that? Well, it was very difficult until recently. But now everybody, and everybody in this room, carries with them a little detector, right? You all carry a cell phone of some kind. And as you well know, every time you make a call 
The telephone company records it. They know every call you made. They know where you are. They know how long that call took place. They know to whom you called it. And they keep records of that. And I have some colleagues at MIT that were able to get hold of all those records. And I mean, not individually, of course, but it's scrubbed. But we have those records, billions and billions of phone calls. So here's what you do with that. You say, I called Stuart, and then within six months, just to take some arbitrary time, you call me back. We define that as a relationship. That's a social interaction. Not just you calling me, but there's a reciprocating. So we count those as a f in, in every city, and then we add them all up, and we plot that. And the prediction is that it should look just like that. So here it is. There it is. And uh, what that is, the two different colors represent two different countries, Portugal and uh, the United Kingdom. And you can see they lie on top of one another, as they should. And they are parallel to the other one with the same slope that the indeed um, uh, confirming or at least uh, strongly indicating that indeed underlying this extraordinary scaling of quantities that seem to have no relationship to each other is in fact the dynamic of social networks and social interactions. Okay, now I have been going on already too long, I suspect, so I'm going to miss the, all this fantastically interesting stuff. I'm going to miss <laughs> out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, I do want to do this, though, and do two other major things. One is um, networks underlie all of this, as I've indicated. And one of the properties of these networks, by the way, which I probably should have emphasized, is that they are fractal-like. They have this, th that is, they have a self-similar property to them. They look this very similar at different scales. And those come out of... Uh, these principles of networks, some of which are optimization principles. So, for example, um, I give one here now, um, uh, our circuitry system, which I mentioned earlier, it has evolved by the continuous feedback mechanisms inherent in natural selection to be optimal in terms of the amount of energy your heart has to do to pump blood through the system. So, uh, just to give you an example, if you were to take the tenth branch of your circuitry system and increase it by 15%, your heart would have to work harder. If you decreased it by 15%, it would have to work harder. You decreased it by anything or increased it by anything, it would have to work harder. And that's true for every part of your network. So you're in this deep basin of optimization. It's fantastic. And that gives rise to these scaling laws, it turns out. And the idea behind that is that you've optimized the amount of energy you need to stay alive in order to maximize the allocation you can do, give, believe it or not, to sex and reproduction, Darwinian fitness, so you can, um, your, for your progeny. So um, one of the outcomes of that, of that network dynamics that I've already mentioned is that if we have sublinear behavior as we do in biology, the three-quarters power law, then the pace of life slows down. It turns out the kinds of networks that social networks, even though the mathematics is similar, it has a different dynamic. And that is a positive feedback loop, in which case I talk to Stuart, 
He talks to Alex, he talks to me, and then we start conversing and we build up. We have this extraordinary phenomenon once we discovered language of building on each other's ideas, building on each other's interactions and so forth. And that has led to all of this, which is extraordinary. So, um, so even though the networks look similar and they have similar properties, this one crucial property that we have invented, namely this positive feedback loop of uh, enhancing interactions and therefore leading to wealth creation and ideas and innovation, also leads to an opposite behavior in terms of the pace of life, and I've indicated up there, the pace of life speeds up instead of slowing down. That phenomenon speeds up the pace of life in a predictable way. And I will illustrate that in the following. On the right, on the left is uh, some other data on heart rates, and you see the decrease. On the right is the increase, and that's the pace of walking in cities. <laughs> and the prediction of the theory is that red line, and you can see there, you know, it's, it, there's some uh, variance, of course, in it. But uh, it's sort of amazing and uh, because it is true when you walk in a city, you are still part of the network. And here's an interesting phenomenon that has come about because of that. Look at this. This is a picture that was in a British newspaper about six months ago in the city of Liverpool. And uh, the caption has been uh, rewritten here so you can read it. This is amazing. Research revealed almost half the nation found the slow pace of high streets to be their biggest shopping bugbear. Not the noise and the pollution and all the other terrible you know, things that keep people away from cities. It's just that people are walking too slow. So what did Liverpool do? They introduced, and that's what this picture is, a fast lane for walking. <laughs> And other cities are beginning to follow it. It's, so there you are. The pace of life is inextricably increasing because of this superlinear behavior. And here's another one. This one's dear to my heart because it drives me absolutely expletive mad. Well, you're familiar. So I want to now just do, I, I will finish up with this. I'm not going to talk about companies. I'm going to finish up with this, I think. Um, Growth. So you remember what I did for organisms? It was basically this equation. I wrote it in English. It's not written in mathematics. But you had metabolism. You had metabolic rate. Your food, you metabolize. You then have uh, metabolic energy. You allocate some of it to repairing cells. And when you grow, you add new cells. And that gave rise to this, uh, this graph this picture, and we're in very good agreement with data, and, and we understood bounded growth. And I told you bounded growth is intimately related to this sublinear economy of scale behavior. So here the, the equation, so to speak, is a little more complicated because many things go into running a city, keeping a city viable and, and so forth, but it's the same conceptual framework. The, whatever's coming in, whether it's uh, you know, literally energy or resources or ideas or products or whatever, these all have to be lumped together. That goes towards maintenance of what's already there. You repair the roads and the buildings. You've repaired the people. You've 
market, there are doctors and hospitals, but there's repair, maintenance, and then there's growth. You grow all the construction that you see in San Francisco, that's part of the growth, and you grow new people, of course, you produce new people. So you can write this down in mathematics and the equation, and as I say, if it were sublinear, we would have this, which we would consider terrible in our paradigm, uh, in our present socioeconomic paradigm, that um, things stop. Things are not supposed to stop. We have, we're supposed to have open-ended growth. And indeed, what is very satisfying is that with superlinear scaling, you get open-ended growth. And I've just made a cartoon of it here, and that's wonderful. And I could show you lots of data that this agrees with, but I just want to show you a cartoon version of it, and that's marvelous, except for one fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw is that dotted line that you see on the left. Uh, the, the straight line, vertical line, is something that's nothing to do with this slide. I think that's to do with the projection. Uh, but it's the <laughs> dotted line <laughs> is what you have to look at. And that dotted line is called in the mathematical lingo a finite time singularity. And what does this mean in English? This means that in some finite time in the future, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, the, whatever you're plotting here could be uh, number of AIDS cases, it could be wages, it could be uh, the GDP. That is going to infinity, which is obviously nuts. That can't happen. And indeed, the theory tells you what happens, and that's given on the right. The, the system stagnates, and then it collapses. That's the end of it. So uh, how do you avoid that? Well, we know how we avoid that, and we know how we have avoided it. And I will finish up with this part. That is that you recognize, I've redrawn it. There it is. You go up, and you would hit this finite time singularity, and the system would be in trouble. But you recognize that this growth has taken place within a given paradigm. And that paradigm is determined by some major innovation, usually, like we, uh, in, we discovered bronze at some stage, or we uh, discovered coal, set the Industrial Revolution going, or we in, uh, invented uh, computers, and more recently, IT. Each one of these represents a major paradigm shift or a some major change which effectively resets the clock. So the idea is, as you go along this growth, you have to, before you hit this transition, this potential transition which is going to take you over the cliff, you better do something major, make a shift of paradigm, so that you can start growing again. And that's what that is. And, of course, what would happen is you'd hit another finite time singularity soon enough. So you better do it again and again and again. And somehow it didn't compile properly with those dots. So I apologize. But um, you have this idea of continuous innovation. And, in fact, there's a kind of theorem. If you want to have open-ended growth, you want to maintain it, you have to have continuous systematic innovation and paradigm shifts, and you have to do that in a regular way. Well, people have talked about that many times, but there's a catch in this, and here's the catch. Going along any one of these curves, life gets faster. The speed of life gets faster. Um, 
Going along with that is that the time between these innovations has to get shorter and shorter. So something that might have taken, I just sort of make this up, a hundred years, a thousand years ago to change now only takes 15 years or 20 years. So the clock that we live by is speeding up. And so we have to have another innovation. You know, the time between computers, laptops, and uh, IT was maybe 20 years or so, um, 25 years. We're going to have to have another major innovation equivalent to IT in the next, this is what this suggests, in the next 20 to 25 years. In fact, all the data suggests that. So um, you can take this argument to an absurd stage and say, well, eventually you're going to have to make a major innovation like that um, every two years and then every one year and then every six months. And uh, so the system will collapse ultimately anyway. So any major innovation is just postponing, just putting things off. So that's the idea. And so we have to come to terms with that. Here's, uh, this is not my stuff. This is um, uh, someone plotted here. How long it took to reach, this is just a way of representing that, 10 million customers. And you can see that that gets shorter and shorter um, uh, with these new inventions as we've moved along in time. Or uh, Ray Kurzweil has written a book about singularities. He has a completely different uh, image of singularities. But nevertheless, he puts some interesting data together, interesting graphs. And this is what this is. And what's plotted here is on the vertical axis how long it takes to make a shift. So or let's look at the horizontal axis. A billion years ago, 10 to the ninth years ago, cells were, were evolved. And it took about a billion years for them to evolve. And so uh, that's what's plotted here, how long it takes to them evolve and how long ago it did. So that the most recent, whoops, the most recent um, you know, took place just 15 years ago and took just a few years to develop. So, um, uh, and by the way, the theory predicts that red line. That's what the red line comes out of the, the whole theory of, that I've just been describing to you. Um, so I'll finish there. I didn't get to talk about, uh, I've talked too long already. I didn't get to talk about companies. I just wanted to leave you with one thing. I'm not going to show you any of this. This is all <laughs> fantastic stuff, marvelous stuff, which you would love to have heard. Uh, I'm going to finish with this. What I didn't point out when I showed you that graph of metabolic rate, some of you may have looked across and seen there was man and woman on it, and you looked across, and it said 90 watts. So each person in this audience, waiting desperately for me to finish this bloody thing, uh, is operating at 90 watts, a light bulb. That's all you need to stay alive, is a light bulb, which is fantastic. We are unbelievably efficient, but we are extraordinarily inefficient and profligate as social human beings, because in order to stay alive with the quality and standard of living that we have evolved, so that you need these lights, you need this room, you need your car, you need the heating, you need the roads, you need your iPhone. If you add all that together for our, the, the social metabolic rate, that's not just a little less than 100 watts, it's 11,000 watts. It's 100 times bigger, and it's equivalent to, each person in this room is equivalent to about a dozen elephants, 
or about three quarters of a blue whale. And there are seven and a half billion of us on this planet all wanting to be like us in one form or another. And there's another five, possibly, well, three to five billion coming on board. So this is the problem that we have, and this is the problem we have to face. And I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to uh, talk about any solutions. Maybe Stuart and I can as we finish. And what I'm going to do is shamelessly promote my book. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, that's great. So, Jeff, the, um, the scaling law stuff is profound and across a whole lot of disciplines. I'm curious who is lighted up uh, as you and Betancourt and Tom Brown and the rest have sort of brought this stuff to light. Who said, oh my gosh, we can really put that to work. That's really important for us. Who said that? Yeah, who, who is excited by oh. scaling laws? Well, that's hard for me to say. I mean, really, I mean. I mean, we would it, imagine it, urban planners would be all yeah, over oh, this. Yeah, oh, I see. It turns out, you mean in terms of the, uh, the urban stuff, the city stuff? In well, particular. anything about the scaling, because uh, it is, it sort of turns a whole lot of things upside yeah. down or sideways. Yeah. And uh, people are differentially realizing how important it can be to them. I'm just curious uh, who gets it. Well, in, um, uh, certainly among the, uh, you know, one of the things that's been uh, interesting is that uh, there's been a lot of uh, very positive response in the, um, among urban planners. Mm -hmm. Um, architects uh, who deal with cities, um, among um, so it helps urban them geographers. Under, it helps them understand. Does it help them plan Well, better? this is a big question. So one of the big challenges in this, which I find very difficult, actually. Because they're not going to get out of that straight no. line. So here's the thing. <laughs> exactly. So here's the thing that, you know, the leap. So I'm, I'm, I come to it as a scientist, sort mm -hmm. of slightly ivory towerish. I'm mm -hmm. interested in understanding it, mm -hmm. in uh, having a theoretical framework that we can understand what the kind of big picture. Uh, and they come is. as engineers. And they, they come. They have to deal something. with real problems. You yeah. have the, you know, you have the sewer system, and you mm -hmm. have, you have mm -hmm. to build buildings and so on, um, and you have developments and so forth. So bridging that gap uh, is extremely difficult. And I've spent quite a lot of time um, talk, trying to, talking to mayors, hmm. uh, or mayors have been talking to me anyway, <laughs> um, about such things. And I talk at uh, many um, symposia and events, uh, both in the business and corporate community and in the, um, the, the developer community, developers mm -hmm. community. And um, part of the reason I participate in that is because I'm, I feel it's very important to somehow not just get the ideas across, but to see how can it be actually useful. Mm -hmm. And um, I think uh, one, one thing to begin with is first just having um, a complementary vision of what a city is, to mm. see it systemically, holistically, that it isn't just this piece and this piece, and it isn't just the buildings and this road and how do you get transport from here to there, but you've got to think of it much more holistically. And urban planning 
has had a very checkered history mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, you start to develop one little area and you discover that, you know, it's had some big effect over here. And the most classic examples of that are, you know, cities designed de novo. I mean, cities that, mm. you know, well, like Brasilia... China, China's building these And cities China's up. having these, these terrible troubles with mm -hmm. their uh, soulless cities, so to mm -hmm. speak. But, you know, Brasilia was, was a disaster. Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. was, was not a very interesting city or attractive mm -hmm. city for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, but that's been very typical. Canberra in Australia, all of these that were designed... <laughs> have been um, not successful mm -hmm. uh, because cities are organic. They do grow and they are, all, uh, they, they are like organisms in that sense. And so going back to your question, it's that, um, you know, I think that if you are a designer, if you are a planner, then um, you should be cognizant of this, that there are these constraints at work. Right, right. You know, okay. in other words, you should you should know that if you're a city... So what do these scaling laws say? They say, you tell me the size of a city in the United States, mm -hmm. then I can tell you with, you know, 10, 15% accuracy how many police there should be, how many AIDS cases you should mm -hmm. be having, mm -hmm. how many patents you'd be producing, what are the average wages, how much crime there should be, and so on. Now, there's fluctuations around that, and one of the things I flipped through on that was exactly this question. What cities and how are cities over and underperforming relative ah. to this baseline. So right. this provides a, what, for want of a better phrase, a kind of scientific baseline mm -hmm. for how a city should be given its size. Because that just, those metrics just come from the fact that we are human beings and we are part of uh, networks and those networks have generic properties that we have evolved with. You know, okay, sort so of in our DNA. The other audience for this must be corporate leaders who are saying, okay, uh, Jeff West says that cities live forever and all companies die, but yes. I don't want my company to die. Exactly. So uh, come and tell us <laughs> how to make my company yes, more like I, a city. And how does that work out? <laughs> can I take a fifth amendment on that <laughs> one? Or something? I think no, you, but you, it's, you can no. begin by saying so, something no, you weren't able to get to uh, before is... Uh, how are companies different than cities? Yes, yeah, so let me, let me just say a few words about that. Um, first of all, if you look at the, what we did, I didn't show any of this stuff, but um, we, we got data on all 30,000 U.S. publicly traded companies since 1950, okay. so all of them. Mm -hmm. And so we know now a great deal about that dynamic. And one of the things you learn very quickly is that... Um, the half-life, meaning mm -hmm. if you take a cohort, mm -hmm. half of them have disappeared in 10 years. So put it slightly different, the average lifespan of a US publicly traded company when it posts on the stock exchange, so it's already been successful mm -hmm. to some extent, mm -hmm. is about 10 years. That's what so these are expect. like the rat, they're just, they're, they're like mammals. They, yeah, they're, they're like they're, us, they're, they're like us. They're sublinear and they poop out. They do, and in fact, what I didn't show you was the fact that um, the scaling of companies in terms of the metrics that you measure are sublinear, mm -hmm. like us, which okay. means if you take just what you said, if you take that argument, two things follow. One is that they stop growing mm -hmm. and they're going to die. And what I flashed through there was to show that uh, companies, all these 30,000 companies start out zooming like we did and then they all stop. They all stop growing relative, by the way, to the GDP. 
That is, so that if you get any, that's why if you get any major fluctuation, companies get into trouble because they're just sitting on top of the, so to speak, the wave. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, but you can then- that's kind of strange because hmm, the metabolism of an animal that yeah. grows quickly and then tapers off and then dies is, seems significantly different than the metabolism, which has all yes, the so socioeconomic the yes. stuff that So the dynamic has. is different. And okay. let, me, let me tell mm. you what that dynamic is a little bit, and some mm. of it you're very familiar with. So the, uh, a fundamental difference between a city and a company is that a city isn't top-down. You know, it doesn't have... It has a mayor. You have mayors and you have administration. But, you know, the, a, a great city is a place that allows almost anything to happen. It encourages entrepreneurship. It, it, you know, to make a sort of cartoon version out of it, you know, you driving here, you see homeless people, you see crazy people on the streets. They provide a kind of boundary for us, you know, that, that anything can be thought of, anything in principle can be um, uh, proposed and so forth. Uh, that's quite different than a company. Company is quite rigid company is, um, uh, you know, there aren't, even Google doesn't have, you know, crazy homeless people. They're all kind of conservative MIT nerds. Well, this, this may explain. You know, they're, they're all, you know, they're all pretty much the same. Right, There's right. very little diversity. Whereas a city, one of the great characteristics of a city is the extraordinary diversity in a mm -hmm. city. So I was in New York last week and I went for an interview somewhere, and next door there was a little shop. Actually, it wasn't so little. A shop. What did it sell? It sold only antique fireplaces. Hmm. Now, that is extraordinary. You know, um, there's not a shop like that probably in San Francisco, but the bigger the city, the more diverse it is, mm -hmm. and the more kind of um, different kinds of activities are encouraged and take place. That's quite the opposite to a company. A company starts out maybe having, being multidimensional, having a large product space, lots of ideas, ideas dominate. But eventually, the market forces limit the product. You know, you, mm. you respond, of course, to uh, where your best sales are. And you have one or two or three or four or some small number of products. And as the company grows, also, you have this problem that you've got to have a serious bureaucracy and administration. Someone has to deal with the taxes and the fact and the cleaning the offices and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, innovation and uh, ideas tend to get squeezed out. And as you well know, that when times get rough for big companies, the f one of the first things they do is limit their research and development because they say, well, this can wait for a few years. Mm -hmm. That is the first sign of mortality. <laughs> they die. Mm -hmm. But some companies can do what cities do. They can try to reinvent themselves. They go try to go through what, you know, I, a to avoid a singularity and a collapse. They um, can reinvent themselves. And some companies have been, you know, GE is a, mm -hmm. a classic example. Uh, comp some companies have done that, but there are very few and far between. Most companies tend to stay within a certain comfort zone Okay, so this suggests one of the things we're seeing play out in the Bay Area is the sort of suburban companies like Google and the intensely urban companies like um, Salesforce and Twitter yeah. and various of these unicorns in town. 
and uh, hugely Amazon in Seattle, right. which is just ensconcing right. itself in the urban yep. fabric there. And then some of the companies are doing a very urban service, basically, like Airbnb right. or uh, Uber and Lyft, right. where you know, ride-hailing is a, largely an urban phenomenon. And you know, I, I wonder if companies finding a way to sort of blend in with the cities, yeah. either physically or in terms of their service, if that is part of the way they can borrow some of the immortality no, that the cities could. conveys. That could, that could. Um, it could, because they, they could become part of the lifeblood of a city in a serious way. As I think from, and I, may, I, I speak without true knowledge of this, but my image of Detroit was that that wasn't true of you know, Ford and General Motors in that sense. I mean, they dominated Detroit, but they weren't the way you just described mm -hmm. as being you know, what you do see. I, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. um, an Amazon or an Uber, maybe even Salesforce getting, you know, coming integral with the lifeblood. I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but that could be a, um, you know, a way of um, uh, forestalling mortality. We'll see. Here's a question from Saad Khan, who asks, since infrastructure scales sublinearly and quality of life scales superlinearly, why doesn't everyone just live in one super awesome city? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, that, that's like, um, yes, you know, why shouldn't there be just one big animal, you know, one huge, humongous Yeah, why don't blue, blue whales well, should rule, right? Yeah, yeah just yeah. one. No, the, the, this goes to something <laughs> that I didn't discuss here, and that is that um, if you can apply this to an ecosystem, you know, to mm -hmm. a collective, mm -hmm. and a forest, for mm -hmm. example, and uh, what you discover is that, of course, there's two things that happen. One is, you know, just you could imagine, why couldn't a forest be one great big tree instead? Could have been. You mm -hmm. could have imagined that. Yeah, really tall. Um, it would be really tall. In fact, it, wouldn't, it would be so tall it would uh, collapse under its own weight. But that's a secondary question. But um, it would, um, the reason is, first of all, it produces offspring mm -hmm. and those grow. So mm -hmm. you have that issue. Mm -hmm. But also you discover that the um, optimal situation for a forest or mm -hmm. for a city or a city, an urban system mm -hmm. is that you have this distribution, <clears throat> pardon me, you have this very regular distribution of sizes mm -hmm. that you need in order for the system to optimize in terms of a collective. So mm -hmm. I only talked, you know, in this talk, I kept it within, you know, treating cities almost as individual and not addressing the question of the fact that they're all part of themselves of an interacting system. San Francisco does not exist of itself. Mm -hmm. It needs Los Angeles, it needs Chicago, it mm. needs Sacramento, it needs Eugene, Oregon, I don't mm. know. It needs, you know, all of these are all part of the, the urban system of the United States. And end of the world. So one hears about no, global cities absolutely. and the planet so, is basically a city. So we're more than half city dwellers now. No, absolutely. Earth. And in fact, one of the most interesting questions is to what extent is there a real global urban system? You know, mm. I mean, first of all, a super system of, mm. you know, New York and Singapore and Dubai and London and so on. Do they form some super urban system? And uh, because they are all highly interdependent. Mm -hmm. And so it is 
at the level of you know, a country. All the, all the um, uh, cities are highly interdependent and uh, could not exist of themselves. They right. would, in fact, uh, collapse under, in, in that sense, almost under their own weight, uh, under their own economic weight. Yeah, it keeps coming up when people talk about cities is that they are connected. Um, I'm going to end with one last question, which is um, one that came up from your book, and it's, it builds on the, the fractal realization and the number four coming out of that. But you make the point that um, living systems have this extra dimension because they're fractal. So they're three-dimensional systems, yeah. but because they're fractal, because our lungs are fractal, or circulatory system, our neurons are fractal, and, and this fractal quality adds not just three dimensions, but the, the capabilities, the productivity, the efficiency of four right. dimensions. And the peculiarity so far is that living systems have those four dimensions, but the things that we manufacture so far yes. don't. They're just plain old 3D, yes. three-dimensional things. Do you see a prospect for <coughs> manufacturing in a sense fractal therefore four-dimensional therefore vastly more productive and efficient devices yeah. computers for example could that be done yeah it's a very good question and one that uh, i've actually have uh, when, when, when i first did this work the biology part before mm -hmm. i got into the city work uh, i thought a lot about that and about that time i was contacted by <laughs> some people manufacturers who were trying to use the idea in manufacturing. Okay. And in fact, uh, <coughs> that led me to a, an abortive uh, collaboration trying to do, um, do the following. Um, you know, when in, in the chemical industry, um, I'm, I'm going to make, a, again, a cartoon version out of this. You know, when they make stuff, they put uh, catalysts in there to make products, mm -hmm. whatever they are, mm -hmm. they're plastics or soap or whatever they... And... Um, they just sort of slosh it all in, so to speak. And um, what I learned from uh, these people was that uh, it would be incredibly efficient if we could do what, like we do in the body, you know, have a, a, a system of mm -hmm. uh, branching networks mm -hmm. that deliver things to specific parts of this, okay. that, so mm -hmm. to speak. And so um, we started actually trying to devise a Macro model to for microfluidics. Yeah, to do that. Exactly. We tried okay. to do that. And in fact, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm proud to say I was uh, one of the first people with this group of buying a commercial 3D printer to print such circuits to do it. Okay. They were all a failure. Okay. <laughs> no, mostly because the 3D printers weren't very good then. Right. Um, um, and, uh, you know, my interest then went off elsewhere. But people have, various people have approached me in, about trying to do making fractal manufacturing processes. Mm -hmm. And um, I suspect that sometime in the future, someone will do that. And now to answer your question about computers, computers are a place where it could be fantastic to By do that. quantum computers or something Well, it else? could be even in quantum computers, mm -hmm. but even regular computers, because but regular computers do have a very crude fractal structure, but no one, as far as I know, the designers of chips mm -hmm. and of, of, uh, of computers, putting chips together, use at all the advantages of a fractal geometry. 
And just to repeat to everybody what, what uh, Stuart alluded to, um, in, the, in the, the way our body works is that, um, you know, we need to deliver to all these cells, and the efficient way of doing it is to have this hierarchical branching network system that takes mm. something macroscopic, delivers mm. it to something microscopic. And uh, the optimal way of doing it is for that system to be fractal, meaning that, you know, you look at any piece of it, it looks like any other piece, you know, like a river. It's uh, self-similar okay. all, it's self -similar, the, way down, all the way yeah. down, yeah. from mm -hmm. the top to the bottom, roughly mm -hmm. speaking. Mm -hmm. And um, that, it turns out, adds in, in traditional fractal geometry, that adds, so to speak, an, an added dimensionality to the mm -hmm. problem. And the number four comes about because um, these networks have to service cells that live in a three-dimensional space. So they have this kind of three-dimensionality automatically to them. And uh, the fractal thing adds a one to them. And so the four is actually three plus one. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that doesn't, re I realize that doesn't actually explain anything. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way it, all, it works out. And by the way, you can, of course, test that, mm -hmm. try to test it by looking at two-dimensional plants, mm -hmm. which we did, we did, actually. We grew, we had a student grow a bunch of two-dimensional plants, you know, things that just go mm -hmm. along a surface, and um, test the theory to see instead of, the number four, three plus one, it should be the number two, two dimensions plus one, it should be three. And uh, the trouble is you couldn't grow a plants big enough mm. to really test it uh, sufficiently. Uh, but let's put it this way, the paper we published said the data were consistent with, mm. the, uh, with the third <laughs> rather than the quarter. Jeff, I can hard. see that this conversation is capable of becoming fractal in yes, itself. Yes, it could indeed. <laughs> and I want to thank you for coming again to sure. this and well, bring us to the next pleasure stage. For, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining LongNow as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.